0: Let me take you from Senegal, Africa, over to Beirut, Lebanon. Our world partner uh, with us today is named Jason Casper. Jason, if you want to come on up. Many of you know Jason. He's been our partner for many, many years here. Him and his wife, Julie, uh, have served with their family of six in Beirut, Lebanon, for the past three years and in the Arab world since 2004. Uh, Jason is originally from Metuchen, New Jersey, and so we're glad to have a Jersey guy back with us today. Uh, he's sent out through Ideas, which is an organization helping Christians with professional skills serve. The Kingdom of God in Overseas Settings. And so for Jason, this is journalism. Uh, he's an incredibly gifted writer. Uh, he works with Christianity Today, serving as their Middle East correspondent. So if you're a CT subscriber, you've probably read some of Jason's excellent pieces. Uh, you do a fantastic job. Thank it's always you. a blessing to hear to hear you and to read what you have to write, uh, and always challenging to me. And so Julie is a homemaker, developing relationships with local women and promoting Moms in Prayer in Lebanese schools, Uh, They have three girls and a boy that are with us today from ages 9 to 15. It's always a pleasure to have one of our world partners with us. To me, this is like having royalty come and visit the church. And so we're honored to have you here today, Jason. Uh, Please join me in a warm Millington Baptist Church welcome for Jason Casper. Thank
1: you. you. Good morning, everyone. It's very nice to be back with you. This is our first uh, Sunday visit back to Millington in three years, the three years that we've been in Lebanon, and some of you may recall that our exit from Egypt, where we'd previously served, was rather difficult. So God has honored us, he has given us a wonderful sense of stability and purpose in a new country that's very beautiful, and uh, many thanks to the church for your prayers and uh, your faithfulness to us during these times. That idea of faithfulness is the... Topic of the fruit of the Spirit that we will be speaking about today from the sermon. Faithfulness is You know, a wonderful quality, of course, and we'll talk about it throughout, but as I was just taking a few moments ago to praise Lebanon and how it's been a refuge and a beautiful place for our country to serve, it's now time to actually shift a little bit and to say that at least in terms of this fruit of the Spirit, Lebanon is probably one of the least faithful nations on earth. I don't know if you guys have followed the news or you're tracking with me in this, but um, it's not just me that would say this, really, I love the place, but every Lebanese will complain about the situation their country is in. Now, that may not resonate exactly. How do you be faithful to a country, right? I mean, we're used to being faithful to people or to places or organizations, maybe. Faithfulness to a country, we don't usually think in those terms. What is faithfulness anyway? Well, to try to boil it down, maybe there's many ways to define it, but what I came up with is it is meeting the mutual obligations that we have. that makes sense? I mean, maybe it feels a little dry to say it that way, obligations. But if we think in terms of the church or in terms of a marriage, faithfulness is performing what's expected, right? In those situations, what is obligatory is love. And love, by its nature, takes away like that sense of obligation. But in reality, yes, we do owe that to our partners, to each other. And so love is the obligation. We are faithful as much as we live that life of love with one another. And we expect to give it back. With a country, it's a little different, of course. And there's words like patriotism or other things that we could substitute here. But faithfulness to a country, if we think in terms of America right? I pay my taxes. So do you. And when I go to the wall and I flip a switch, I expect that there will be electricity there. I take this little plastic card and I go and I stick it in a machine and I get money out. Now, these are very ordinary things. You don't think about them at all. But really, it's an exchange that our country has promised. It's the way society works. America is a system and it's a faithful system. Lebanon is not. If you flick on a light switch, you might get electricity if it's one of those two to three hours a day that the government is actually going to supply it. They used to be able to put that piece of plastic into a machine, but now, because of the economic crisis there, the banks are saying, actually, well, it's still your money, you just can't have any of it. And so within this, what do you do? We're faithful to a system in America, and we don't have to think about it. We don't have to deal with each other in most of these equations. But over in Lebanon, where there is a lack of system, faithfulness has to have a different type of expression. So within the series of the Fruit of the Spirit, I'm going to use that theme series verse a little bit as a template for an outline that's going to talk about how faithfulness works and, in fact, what happens when faithfulness fails, so just put up this verse for a moment. Of course, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, etc. We're going to talk about faithfulness today. And against such things, there is no law. Now, you've probably already had a sermon explaining what that means. But if you think in terms of there is no law, that very much describes Lebanon. There is no system that works. They have laws. They don't really follow them. There's ways around them. But in a place like that where things are breaking down... The fruits of the Spirit become very important. And if you're not going to have faithfulness to a system, you need instead to have a community. If the country is not going to take care of you, your people must, right? Now, in Lebanon, there are 17 different religious communities. Then you will belong to one of them. And it is primarily that sect that is going to be the ones that take care of you. Now, if we simplify that 17, it boils down roughly to a population that is one third Christian, one third Sunni Muslim, and one third Shiite Muslim. And the politicians in each of these sects don't really compete with one another. They compete within the sect to be the ones that represent their fellow Christians or Sunnis or Shiites. And there's a word for this, actually. It's very similar to faithfulness, but It's a different slant, and it's one you probably won't like. It's called patronage. But really, patronage is what's needed in a community. Those who have things must take care of those who don't. And in return, those who don't will take care of those who do. And it reinforces itself across social and economic classes, and it makes certain that people are somewhat taken care of. The reason you don't like this term, you're conditioned against it, is because it's not the way America certainly is supposed to work, and because it is rife for corruption. And that is what every Lebanese will say about their country. These politicians say it about their country. Every one of us is corrupt, except me, really. (laughs) And so it doesn't really have to be that way, And in fact, there are good examples from Lebanon. Throughout the sermon, we're going to talk about one politician. He represents the Sunni community. And he was rich before he entered politics. Now, he entered politics, and what did he do? As the good patron, he made certain to take care of his own Sunnis, who would elect him to the position that he had. And in office, he spent his own money to build schools and hospitals, and other institutions that furthered the cause of Lebanon. And it wasn't just for his own Sunnis that he did this. He did this for all Lebanese. And, of course, the Sunnis loved him, but the Christians loved him, and the Shiites had a grudging respect for him because he transcended that patronage that was limited to his own community. He did it pretty well. Patronage also in Lebanon affects the churches, You may well know it's not in the news much, but 10 years ago in the Civil War, all of those Syrian refugees came over to Lebanon. And what are you going to do with them? Well, the churches took it upon themselves eventually, they struggled with this in the beginning, but to provide lots of aid and support. Now, we think that would be a natural thing to do, and you do it for God, but the churches face a cultural situation where all of a sudden they have lots of people who depend on them. Some of them said, okay, let's take this aid and let's distribute it after the church service so that all of these Syrian Muslims who are coming in to get aid would at least hear the gospel week after week after week. They can believe or not believe, of course, but let's take advantage of this patronage that we have and we will use it to put the gospel before them. Other Syrian, excuse me, Lebanese churches said, no, no, that's that's terrible, we can't do that at all. Let's just give them the aid, we'll tell them we have church at 11 o'clock on Sunday, if they want to come, they can come. Then there was a third group that seemed to say, well, okay, we can't really make it so required, but we should take advantage of this opportunity, let us create, like, a church for the Syrians, and and small groups, and systems in which they'll get the aid, independent of whether they come or not, but will have an environment, a, a community, where they can come. If this was you, which one of these three examples would you pick? And all of them are trying to serve God faithfully, and all of them, no matter what they did, they're still within this system of patronage in which it's hard to tell if this Syrian Muslim actually has become a Christian or not because they're dependent on the aid, and maybe they'll get a little more if they come faithfully to church, but then they actually do believe somewhere along the way, and it's just really messy. These are some of the issues that come with patronage. And it's why we don't, certainly as Americans, really like the term. But we are going to speak today about the perfect patron, who if he existed in Lebanon, they would certainly elect this guy. And that is Job. Okay, We know the story of Job. He was a rich man in his day, very influential. And in fact, he was righteous. He loved God. And Satan came to God one day and said, really, the only reason why Job loves you is because you bless him. Right? You take that away, he'll just curse you. God said, no, 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 he won't. Job is my servant. He loves me. And they entered into this context, and at the end of it, Job lost everything. Boom, gone. Everything is now disappeared. And the rest of the book of Job is... Long chapters, we probably haven't read most of them because it's just three guys arguing with Job over and over again about what happened to him. It's terrible, really. But we're going to read some of those passages. And we are going to see why Job puts before us a picture of patronage that may actually square with faithfulness in that fruit of the Spirit term that elevates this concept just a little bit. So read with Job chapter 29, and we'll see a little bit about him. Job says, as he's defending himself to his three friends, he's saying why he really didn't deserve this fate. I was a good person. When I went to the gate of the city and took my seat in the public square, the young men saw me and stepped aside. The old men rose to their feet. The chief men refrained from speaking Covered their mouths with their hands. The voices of the nobles were hushed, and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouths. Whoever heard me spoke well of me, those who saw me commended me. Isn't that last sentence something we would love to have people think about us? Now, who was Job? He wasn't a young man, you know, a go-getter who could really attract a lot of attention in society. He wasn't an old man who was worthy of respect and, and deference from those around him. He wasn't an elder, he wasn't a chief in which he commanded by who he was the respect of the tribe to which they belonged. Somewhere he was in the middle of that, but because he was a patron, because he served well, all of these people in society respected him. And what a great testimony, right? Wouldn't that be wonderful if people could say that of us? And where is Job? At the gate of the city. The position of influence. The public square. He has a place in society where he's going to make a difference for people. And he's there for a certain reason. Okay? As we keep on reading his testimony, whoever heard me spoke well of me. Those who saw me commended me. Why? Because I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist them, the one who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. So Job took his money, his wealth, and he helped the poor. He helped the widows, those who were dying, those who were needy. This is something I think that is rather familiar to us as Christians. right? We know this. God has blessed us, we will take some of that, we'll give to charity, we'll help the poor, we can do what we can. We think of this as part of our normal obligations to which we must be faithful, but really what's being set up here, at least in Job's day, was a system of patronage. But it's more than that that Job was doing. He wasn't just sharing a little bit of what God had given him. If we keep reading, it gets even more intense. From verse 14, I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. This isn't just charity, this is advocacy. He is going and he's lifting the poor up from their troubled state. He is interceding in the area for the marginalized who don't have others to support them. He is going a step further, and this whole thing about breaking the fangs of the wicked, he is destroying the systems that oppress people. He is using the influence that he has to make his world a better place, and in fact, to defend his community, not just his fellow rich buddies not just throwing some coins to the poor. He is, on behalf of the entire society, the faithful patron that is going to take care of everyone. And, in response, he gets a lot of respect for it. All of these old people, young people, whoever, they shut up and listen to him. It's a great testimony. Question is, is it required of us today... Now, oh, of course, we must be generous, we must help the poor, justice is a concern, sure. But in this sense of patronage, should we view our Christian lives through that lens? That's not the way America works. Lebanon does, and Lebanon is a terrible place because of it in many ways. But nonetheless, Job does it well. Should we do that well? Well, there's a few verses that kind of give an equivocal answer That I think suggests that maybe we could profit from seeing it through that lens without absolutely saying we should. But if we start first with Luke chapter 6, this comes from the parable of the unjust servant. It's one of Jesus' most difficult parables. You could probably preach a sermon and not fully understand it. But the story basically goes that this is an employee who cheated his employer out of money that was deserved because he knew he was going to get fired and he needed to protect himself. So he did, and everybody honors him. Even Jesus, in the summary statement, honors him, unusually. And the verse goes, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now that eternal dwellings part, there's something going on here with eternity and a greater spiritual lesson than simply patronage. But patronage is here, right? Use your wealth to make friends. You're gonna get in trouble one day and there need to be people there who bail you out. So invest your money now so that you can have that community around you that will take care of you. Apparently, this is just wisdom that Jesus wants us to follow. Patronage working itself down. Well, there is also biblical wisdom. It shows patronage showing itself up. The Bible says, of course, we should not bribe others. We should not be corrupt. But listen to this. Proverbs eighteen sixteen, A gift opens the way for the giver and ushers him into the presence of the great. Well, what are you going to do when you get there? You're going to ask a favor, right? Use your money so that you can buy access to those people who can help you or help your ministry or help God's cause or whatever it is. But somehow or other, a wealth that we have is legitimately used to give us access to power. That's patronage. Pure and simple. Now, there's a third verse that I want to bring in that kind of shows the legitimacy of this patronage type of thinking through the lens of faithfulness. Now this one's going to be a little twist and it takes us in a direction we're probably more comfortable. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul writes, command those who are rich in this present world to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. okay, There's the general charity, help the poor sorts of message that we're comfortable with. We know we're supposed to. But then he continues, in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Here, what's happening is God is undoing the system of patronage that exists so often in the world. You help those with the money that you have. And in return, God is not going to put those people at your beck and call to honor you and praise your name. He is going to simply make a ledger in heaven and give you treasures for eternity. And those treasures in eternity are also going to be the life here on this earth that gives us such peace and value. God, in a sense, is taking away the obligation of patronage from those you are helping to himself. We, in order to live our lives overseas, receive support from churches, from families who give generously to us. They ask nothing of us except that we be faithful to the job that God has given us to do. And every month we write a letter to tell you about it. We have no expectations upon us. Freely, we have been given. So patronage, as useful as it might be in this world, isn't God's ultimate objective. We do not give to the poor so that we can be lifted up as those great benefactors. But where we have been blessed, Scripture is pointing us in a direction that we should be patrons, Now let's go back for a moment to the theme verse of this series, to Galatians chapter 5. And here's another way in which, kind of a fourth reason, that we should consider this lens of patronage for our faithfulness. Galatians 5 says, is this fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, is because we belong to Christ. And if we belong to Christ, of course, we must do the things that Christ did. We must be the sort of person that he was. And Christ was a patron. We don't think of him in those terms, but let's read a verse that kind of points us in that direction. A fourth way in which we can be inspired to be a patron for others and to have this community around us that mutually supports itself. John chapter 15. Jesus says, My command is this, Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. The community that is established, we sacrifice ourselves for it. This is what love does. Remember that Sunni politician? He was generally beloved by the Lebanese community, But you see, in Lebanon, if you're going to be a politician, you give me your vote, and I'll make certain that your nephew has a job when he graduates from college. You have to go fill out some paperwork at the local agency. You say my name, and they'll speed up the process for you. That's the way patronage works in Lebanon, even for a man like this who did care for society. But you see, what happened to him is... He kind of stepped beyond the bounds. If you simply are going to be in this system of patronage as the Lebanese politicians, you can milk the system, you can get your power, take care of your own people, use the resources of the state, and it all balances and they divide up the pie and it all works fine, nobody's bothered by anybody. But you step out of line, you start pursuing justice. Well, this politician knew what he was getting into assassinations are very common in the country. You remember two years ago the Beirut blast. It destroyed half of the whole city. We lived outside of that radius, thank God, but it was a terrible what happened to the country. Well, at a much smaller scale back in the year 2005, a car bomb blew up one of the streets of Beirut that this politician was riding in at that time. It's a complicated story. I don't mean to make a hero out of him. There's all sorts of ways to interpret what was happening. But he was seemingly taking the country in a direction that was changing its political control from Syria, trying to make Lebanon a little bit more independent. And he paid the price for it. He gave his life for his friends. Now, If you have any sort of negative reaction to the way that I've begun using this passage, I don't blame you, right? Because I will sacrifice my life. I will lay it down for my friends, for those who I love, right? Of course we do. This is what Jesus taught us. It's also, in some way, part of human nature, right? If we love each other, we will defend. We will sacrifice for each other. That's not patronage. That's just friendship. But there was a certain way in which these words were used back in the Roman era. And if you read carefully, as we continue in this passage, the way Jesus describes friendship isn't the way that we think of it today, really. You are my friends if you do what I command. Okay, Jesus is God, he's our savior, we do what he commands. We don't have any question with that. But that's not friendship. Right? You don't order each other around. But back in the day, it was. You see, the Romans, who were free citizens, wealthy, they were patrons in their day. They took care of them. Many of them had slaves. And it would not be uncommon, for from time to time, the patron, the nobleman, would free one of his slaves. Maybe he was particularly faithful in his job, and he rewarded him. Well, that slave would not simply say, thank you, pick up his belongings, and move to another part of town and make his way. Well, maybe he could, but it wouldn't work. Because in order to succeed in society, you need somebody looking out for you. But what would happen instead is that this slave now changed his status to client. And he stayed within the household of the nobleman. His patron took care of him. So as opposed to the nobleman ordering a slave around to do whatever he wanted to do for his own benefit, now for this client the patron would make certain that his kids got an education, that he had access to upward mobility somehow or other. But this word client didn't exactly fit well with the way that they thought of themselves, and so they came up with a different word for it. That word was friend. Now, they may have been friendly, but they weren't buddies. There was certainly no equality here, like we view friendship between ourselves today. And it probably is certain, or excuse me, probably is likely that the disciples, when they heard Jesus speak here, heard it in that way. Of course, we're the slaves of God, He created us. And Jesus, what he offers us, goes far beyond what this nobleman offers us. If we keep reading, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I make known to you. No nobleman was going to share every family secret with these clients. Jesus elevates us even further, but that word friend certainly shows that we are in a subject nature to him. Jesus, in this sense, is not our buddy. We have to do what he commands. And maybe I'm no longer a slave in that household, but if I don't follow the instructions of my patron, he's going to stop honoring me. That's the way it worked in society. And so now there's a different view. If we are looking for evidence that our faithfulness today can be expressed through a system of patronage, Here's more evidence. It's not simply that I will lay down my life for my friends, people who I like. I will lay down my life for my inferiors. And that is something even stronger, right? Who's going to do that? I might like my client. He might be useful to me. I might even wish his success in the world. But will I sacrifice myself for him? As we help people in this world, as we seek to do our influence for the glory of God, we lay down our lives for those who are less than us. Now, as Americans, we don't even like that terminology. We're all equal, right? Not really. But we must lay down our lives for our clients. Because that's what Jesus did for us, right? We have more evidence of Jesus being in this role. If we read in First John chapter 2, it goes like this. John is writing here, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have a patron with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now you see that patron there is my word, in brackets is advocate, that's the word that usually gets translated there, and advocate, lawyer, is a very fine translation. We know, of course, that our sins have been forgiven because they have been exchanged for Jesus's, right? There is a sort of legal transaction that took place, and a lawyer is going to be the one who defends you in front of it. Perfectly fine translation. But the Greek word here is... Paraclete. And paraclete, you may recognize from other sermons where it's talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the paraclete, is our comforter, in one sense. In another sense, it's sometimes translated intercessor. But the word paraclete, as it was used in society around, yes, was a lawyer, yes, all of this is, is, is right, but there was a Jewish philosopher back in that day first century called Philo and Philo was looking at the Jews of Alexandria where he lived and saying we have a problem because the governor is oppressing us what do we do about that? well as he's writing systems he's saying to everybody we need to find ourselves a paraclete who can go on our behalf to the emperor now Certainly here, this word does not mean lawyer. You're not going to send some lawyer to the emperor and say, according to regulation 46.B.A., you need to stop oppressing these Jews, right? Because the law says so. No, this is nonsense. That's not going to make a lick of good. The emperor has all the power in the world. What you need is someone to go to the emperor and say, hey, you know who I am. Leave these Jews alone. Okay, they're not causing you any problems. I know who they are. I'll stick up for them. And that patron, translating the word that way, needs to have greater clout than the governor does, who's put in place to govern the city in the first place. This is what Jesus is for us. Now, we sin. We know that, of course, God forgives us. But do you ever think about how serious this is? Our Savior, who died for us, who forgave us, who gave us right standing with God, we're going to slap him in the face by being selfish, prideful, irritable. And we slough it off like it's not a big deal. We have Jesus going to the Father and saying, Hey, leave these guys alone. They're mine. I'll take care of them. Jesus is our patron putting us, keeping us in right standing with the Father. Now, let's go back to Galatians because there's one third area to explore where this starts to get a little bit difficult. Right? What does it say? Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its, with its passions and desires. That sounds odd to me, actually. Love joy, peace, faithfulness. These are not things that we think of in terms of crucifixion. right? These are good things. We want this in our life. What needs to die? The problem is faithfulness, certainly patronage. If we go back to that definition, meeting mutual obligations, that idea of mutuality, reciprocity, we often think in this in terms of we get something back. We are faithful, and then the other person will be faithful to us. And everything's great when it works that way. But that's not necessarily the way it works. And certainly in the life of Job, it didn't. He lost it all. That Sunni politician, after he was killed, of course, his son took over the political empire, inherited the wealth, and he wasn't as skilled a politician, Uh, maybe wasn't as generous with the, the money, still played that role of patron, so people respected him, people voted for him, but the money started running out, the economic collapse accelerated, and he kind of found himself sort of bankrupt. And as the country started revolting against this entire system, we get this picture from the revolution. So just go ahead and advance the slide. Oops, sorry, I jumped ahead. One more. That's him. To me, that's sad. Now, most Lebanese would probably say he deserves it they'd actually probably keep voting for him because it is a system where you need your powerful politicians to take care of you. And it's not just him. You look down the line, every other politician is getting their clown treatment too. But it is sad. You set up a system where you mutually be faithful to each other and that's what happens when you can no longer satisfy your role. Let's go back a slide and, and, and read where I skipped ahead, unfortunately. You see, Job thought life was going to work out fine. And really, it should have. As we continue the main passage, he's described why he was a faithful man, a good patron, taking care of people. And, I thought, I will die in my own house. My days as numerous as the grains of sand. My roots will reach to the water and the dew will lie all night on my branches. My glory will not fade. The bow will be ever new in my hand. Right? Isn't that what Job deserved? He didn't sin. From the beginning of the story, we know that God loved him. He was a righteous man and he proved it. And yet now, all these people that he served disappear. Disappear. Now, what's Job's reaction? We'll jump ahead, uh, excuse me, back in the, the conversation he's having with his friends a little bit to pull out this verse, but in chapter 27, Job says, as surely as God lives, who has denied me justice, I will maintain my righteousness and not let go of it. Does that resonate with anyone? Maybe not the stridency, but Certainly there's some people here who have lost a loved one to an untimely death. There are faithful Christians in this church who have lost their job and experienced a lengthy time of unemployment where your whole identity gets ripped from you and you feel useless. I'm certain that there are some of you who have raised your children in the church to fear God and yet they have gone wayward some way or another. Does not this resonate? God, I did everything I was supposed to. Why isn't this working out better? Okay, I know there's troubles, I know there's suffering, but come on. In some Christian settings, perhaps, we would say we shouldn't talk this way. We shouldn't go to God and complain about these things. There's probably a humility that that suggests that's true, but I think more days now in life we realize that this is actually probably a pretty decent template for us. You see, Job didn't turn his back on God. He didn't curse God. He continued to follow God despite his suffering, but he went and he brought to God his complaint, his frustration. And goodness was he frustrated, because it's not just God he takes this out on. Read the next verse. This follows actually in the passage that we've been concentrating on. Chapter 30, he writes of the society that left him to rot, who didn't take care of him. But now they mock me. Men younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to put with my sheepdogs. So you can sense it, huh? Job is miffed, spent his life taking care of these people. Now they spit at him. And I don't know if your minds are racing ahead in the direction that mine did as I started preparing the sermon, but here is where, to some degree, I have to start preaching to myself. You see, I'm 47 years old now. You guys have known me the last two decades plus. And our country has changed a lot in those 20 years. And I don't live here, but I look from afar, and I see words like Christian nationalism being thrown about, other euphemisms to describe who we are and what we've tried to do in this country, and I don't like it. No, that's not right. That's not what we were trying to do. We weren't concerned about power. We wanted no theocracy. This is what we believe that God wanted for the good of everybody, We don't force you to believe anything. This is just the right way to structure society. We didn't even have constraints to do it all the way we wanted. We partnered, we worked, we compromised, we did what we could in order to make our country a better place. And now, this is what you call us? You mock us? Well, to the situation in America, certainly to the sermon so far, I would say that that is one of maybe three Possible reactions that you might be having. I, in honesty, share the sentiments of all three of these reactions, but I'm starting with this one because that's where it hurts. But the second reaction would go more like this: Were we really as righteous as we thought we were? If we look back over the influence that we had for these past 20 years plus, did we care for the poor, the marginalized? Did we tend to justice to the degree that we might have been able to? Okay, we weren't Job, but we tried to be, right? But with a little self introspection, this second perspective might say maybe to some degree God is, you know, humbling us for our failures, despite our intentions. Well, there's a third reaction that some of you might have to this sermon in general. And that's to say, thank God someone from the pulpit is probably now, finally, teaching about social justice. About the desire that we have to step up and say that there are systems of impression in this nation that we must break the fangs of. And some of your hearts might be resonating right now, actually, with this message that perhaps hasn't been preached the way that it needed to have been the past several years? I don't know. Like I said, my spirit goes in all three directions. But really, all three of these responses fall short. They miss the boat. And they are not what God does to Job. If anything, these three responses are more like the three friends of Job in these many chapters in which they go back and forth trying to explain why things have fallen apart, why faithfulness is not working. Well, maybe I sinned. No, I didn't sin. Uh, But I, I should have done this. No, you shouldn't have done that. Yes, no, this, maybe. God's teaching you something. Sure, yes, whatever. There are all sorts of theological truths in the book of Job that don't work. There are all sorts of proper responses in each of these three reactions that are legitimate, but that's not what God does when he speaks to Job. What does he do? What does God say to Job at the end of this? When God, excuse me, when Job has gone to God and said, I want justice. Why have you treated me this way? Why has faithfulness not held? God goes, who are you? Did you make that mountain over there? Do you keep this world spinning? Do you create these beautiful creatures? You think you know what justice is and how to keep this all working together? Well, who are you? God puts Job in his place. And what's odd, maybe, is that God gives Job no answer. We know the story, we know what was going on at the beginning, but try as we might to figure out this country, or my life, or whatever it is, the response of God here is, you get nothing, which isn't really true. Certainly that's not the way Job experienced it when it was done. He got put through the ringer, what does he say? Chapter 42, end of the story. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You see, I think Job's problem is like a lot of our problems. We read the Bible, we go to church, we do what we're supposed to. We have heard about God, but we have not seen him. That's a horrible way to say it. We have seen Christ. We've repented of our sins. He is the Holy Spirit indwelling us. But yet we live our life without that vision of Him that continually puts us in our place, humbles us. And like Job, whichever of these three responses you find yourselves in, we all must repent of the same thing. We're all answering the questions why didn't this faithfulness work out? Why weren't my mutual obligations met? But can we talk to God that way? We must repent because, in each way, these are all responses to say, why didn't it work? And what do we do now so that it will work in the future? No. Job only gets God, he sees God, and that is what we must see in our lives. Amen. It's not the end of the story. Job gets his stuff back. That's nice. He gets more of it than he had before, that's nice. I don't I say that facetiously because I kind of do. It doesn't really seem important compared to seeing God in his majesty. But at the same time we know that God will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. When we go through suffering, God will rebuild us, usually. But besides his stuff, he gets something more important. He gets his family back. And so we see Job at the end of the story there surrounded by loved ones once again. It's said actually he has three daughters who are the most beautiful in all the land. I don't think they're in the pews right now, but I embarrassed them this morning at the first service by resonating with that sentiment. My nine-year-old son is quite handsome in his regard. But there's one thing, at least according to the text, That Job doesn't get back. He gets his stuff. He gets his family. He does not get his influence. Where do we find Job at the end of the story? At home. In the beginning, where was he? At the city gate. Now, I imagine that with all this stuff, Job again was faithful. I'm sure he returned to his progress, program of helping the poor and making a difference in society where he could, but... At the end of the story, he doesn't get that back. So, he gets something a little different. God doesn't simply address Job. He speaks also to the three friends and basically tells them, you three are not in right relationship with me. And here's what Chapter 42 says, after Job responds in his repentance, after the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to his three friends two very important things. First, my servant Job. God validated him in front of his friends, the ones who were giving him a hard time. But really, I would say he validated himself to Job himself. My servant Job. And I imagine, I, I don't know the Greek or the Hebrew to do these textual studies, but I sense that it's not just servant here, but it's what Jesus said in terms of friend. Job is part of my household. He is in right relationship to me and you are not. But the sentence doesn't end there <laughs> as he talks to these three friends. My servant Job will pray for you. He doesn't get his influence in society back. But if these three individuals are going to return to a right relationship with God, it depends on Job to get them there. Job has been given spiritual patronage. Now, maybe he goes back to the public square, maybe he doesn't. Maybe God wants us there, maybe he doesn't. But it certainly puts in perspective our thought of making a difference for God in this world that once humbled, what is given to Job? excuse me, given to Job? A spiritual role. Prayer. How many of us consistently pray for the members of our family? I don't. I kind of do sometimes when they give me a hard time. That's my first job. Our neighbors, our coworkers, those who we're in relationship with, this church, this government, whatever. Yeah, sure, let's make a difference in the world. Let's be a patron to those we can help. But really, my servant Job will pray for you. That's the job at the end that Job gets. Is that enough for us? Or do we want our faithfulness to be validated in this world? Okay, if not from people, what about from God himself? We don't get that. That's not the way God works. Can it be said, my servant Millington will pray for you? Joe, Goethe, Helen, whatever our names are, is that us these days? And can we accept that even as we're frustrated by the world around us, the life that we have and the turn that it took? My servant Job will pray for you. Let's pray now. God, when we think of what you have given us, the way that you have honored us, we can only be thankful. And um, it's hard to know what to do more than that. You have blessed us, you have given to us, you have put us through hard times. Um, but we sometimes long for more than just your presence. The vision of you that you will offer to us only when we are truly humbled and reminded of what we are, but then invited into so much more. We are your friends. We are more than just your clients. Um, Thank you, God. Help us to live rightly, to think rightly. Bless this church as it goes about its continual service in this community, for others. Expand its influence. Give it a great position in the city square so that your words can be spoken through your servants here. We pray for our nation and for our friends that this world may turn in a direction that honors you and leads to the blessing of all, but whether it does or not, remind us of who we are and your great love for us so that we might pray for you to make a difference in this world and take that burden off ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.